Hello, can you hear me? Welcome to Charlotte Dunes Lagoon. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, why don't you introduce yourself, give my listeners and readers a little bit of detail on your background, who you are, where you are now, and talk about your recent time abroad. All right, great. Hi, um, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Melanie Duhan, and um, I'm an American, born and bred, but um, recently just returned from my second stint uh, living in Beijing, China. Um, my husband works for a Chinese company, um, which has taken us there twice. Um, this, it once from 2011 to 2014. And this latest time we left in uh, August of 2019 and just recently uh, returned. So we got to have the whole COVID experience in China, which was, from what I can tell, very different than it was uh, here back in the United States. Um, so yeah, so uh, basically, uh, my biology, my background is in biology, but um, but I've been recently uh, teaching English as a second language um, and doing other volunteer experiences. But um, when I'm in China, I'm basically just enjoying the, the culture and the and the people and and having a really good time meeting people from all over the world. So I'm what's called a trailing spouse. <laughs> I love it. I once, I was like, being a trailing spouse is either the best or the worst thing in the world. Like, I think I would actually love it because when you're working abroad, you know, I worked abroad as well for a decade. And when you're working abroad, you don't get to enjoy the country as much as you think you're going to get to enjoy it because you're constantly working. But the, so the trailing spouses, I was always very envious of them because they knew all the markets. They got to go to all the like places for lunch. And I was in my office, just in my office. So mm -hmm. how, like, how has that, I want to definitely talk about what the pandemic was like in China, but also how is it for, for you being a trailing spouse and like the pros and the cons? Well, I mean, the, the major con is you're not working right and and um for somebody who, who has been working most of her life um that's a bit of an adjustment um but uh the great i guess it, like you said it sort of depends upon where you are a trailing spouse i think um and because it is difficult to get a work permit in china almost all the other spouses who were there were also trailing <laughs> so we had a, a fairly decent uh population of expat mostly women some uh, some husbands, but mostly wives, uh, who also had no job and you know were interesting people from all over the world, and we did so many wonderful things together. We traveled together. We played mahjong a couple times a week. Um, we had a history lecture club with a local historian. Um, so I, I found it like I had literally hundreds of friends from all over the world that I could hang out with. So being a trailing spouse for me, even without working was really pretty awesome. <laughs> and I mean, and, and COVID definitely affected that. Um, to, but we were we were stuck in China that that we couldn't leave very easily, um, which kind of just drew us sort of together, I think, whereas um, like in other places, it, 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 it isolated people um, because of the way COVID dealt with with or China dealt with COVID, they shut the country down. So we didn't have COVID. <laughs> we couldn't leave but we didn't there was no COVID um so we only had each other and 
I mean, I made some really, really good friends. I think at this time as a trailing spouse, just really amazing women, you know, with amazing backgrounds from all over the world. So um, I'm very pro trailing spouse in China, at least. I know it can be different in different expat experiences, but for me, it was, it was pretty amazing. I have so many questions. <laughs> um, first off, like maybe describe a bit like what your actual, what did it actually look like for you guys? Like what kind of housing does, do people have there? How close were your friends? When you say there was no COVID, was it like just no, like everything completely normal? Cause I think Americans have this impression that like China was all locked down and everyone yeah. was in condos with yeah. masks on. So, so like most things with American media, um, you guys heard the the great fun stories that were the most exciting to hear, and that all that did happen. But that was those were blips in time that most people, most Americans, have sort of focused on, and mostly Shanghai. When you're talking about the lockdowns that you heard about, that was Shanghai um, and Wuhan, of course, when it first um, broke out. But that never really happened in Beijing, so we never got locked down like that. I mean, we were tested frequently, um, but generally, the nobody who Everybody who entered China had to quarantine. Um, so they basically managed for the most part, especially in Beijing, because Beijing was particularly strict because it's the capital. They literally, we had for those three years, pretty much no COVID until we all got COVID, <laughs> which we all did within the period of about a month. Um, last December, almost everybody I knew got COVID. It was, when they finally decided, okay, we're done with this, we're just letting it in, it just pushed right through. Um, but before that, we, we really didn't have very many cases. If one or two came in, then they would lock down where they found those cases. But you're talking about, you know, one apartment complex out of a city of 22 million people. So my apartment complex never got locked down. My, the, one of the buildings did for a week because there was a case there later, like in, in 2000, it was 2023, 20, still 2023. No, 21, 22, 22. Um, but for the most part for in Beijing, we didn't, we didn't have that kind of oppression that you guys have heard about. Um, there was always the threat of it. Um, because if there was a case in your compound or a friend's compound that you had visited or anything like that, you could get locked down and you would spend two weeks in your apartment. Um, that being said, and I, but we never had to do that. That being said, we did come back to the U.S. twice during that time period, and getting back in was difficult. We had to do the two week, two weeks quarantine. The first time was two weeks plus one week in Shanghai, and then um, the second time was just ten days. But that is in one hotel room, can't leave. That's not fun. <laughs> but I mean, that's how they get COVID out. I get, I get it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a proponent of the way that China dealt with COVID. Um, but I'm also not a proponent of the way the U.S. dealt with COVID. I, I, and I understand that there's not really with a virus, not a lot of happy medium in between the two um, because it's a virus and they're, 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 they're fairly infectious. <laughs> um, but I see both sides. I see the you know, freedom that the U.S. had and I see the lack of freedom that, that we had. But we had no COVID. So. Um, but you, you asked about how we are living. So we are living, we're living um, and then it's sort of the downtown area. It's Beijing is enormous. Um, most of my friends lived within, um, I'm going to say like a 10 mile radius of each other on the eastern side of Beijing. Um, just expats have a tendency to gravitate there. 
um, there were certain apartment complexes that people lived in that were aimed a little bit at expats because they had things like ovens, <laughs> um, which most Chinese uh, apartments don't have and are just laid out a little differently. Um, maybe some wood floors instead of they like stone floors kind of thing. Um, so a lot of us lived somewhat together. I mean, my, my compound was far from being entirely foreign, but it had a lot more foreigners than, than most compounds. And it was like, built, uh, we had five buildings. Mine was 35 floors tall. I was on the 21st floor. Um, it's a sweet deal because my company paid for it. Had a beautiful view of downtown Beijing and the big park that we live just on the south edge of Chaiyang Park, which is kind of like Central Park, only tacky. Um, <laughs> and just a beautiful, gorgeous apartment. It was, it was, it was nice. But I also had friends that lived out in the suburbs. There were homes that that people had, um, especially people who had younger children, had a tendency to live out in in the burbs. Um, there was that option as well, but most of my friends lived, lived downtown and were, you know, within a couple miles of me. To have a yard, I guess, would be to go to the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted your own yard, you want to be close. Most of the good international schools are out in the suburbs as well. So when my son was with us, he was there for the first two years. Um, you know, he had to take the bus out half an hour to, to school. So, which would have been longer commute if it hadn't been for COVID. Um, there wasn't nearly as much traffic during COVID. Um, so that's another reason people live out there. Uh, I mean, but our, our complex, we lived there both times. So we lived there from 2011 and 2014 as well. And like we had an eight year old and an 11 year old at that point. Um, and there was, a, but we had a big yard and, and a area, shared area with, with, uh, uh playground and swings and trampolines and all that stuff so and the kids loved it so it works worked too it's just kind of the style of living that you're looking for um I'm curious if the Chinese apartments have some kind of oven alternative or it's just like not popular enough to cook in an oven yeah they just they just don't bake things in general um if they if they want to they're getting into it it's getting kind of like you, there's places where you can go and pay you know how we paint a pot or you know you you sip and chill and paint a painting there's places you go in china and you bake <laughs> because they have ovens so you get together with your girlfriends on a for a party and you go bake your own birthday cake <laughs> kind of thing um they will sometimes have toaster ovens but most in generally most most apartments don't they they um they cook everything fairly fresh and they buy their their baked goods. So. I'm fascinated. What is what is it like to live in a city of 22 million people? And if you could choose to go and live like anywhere, would you choose to live in China? Um, okay, first questions first. What's it like to live in a city of 22 million people? If you don't go out at rush hour, it's fine. <laughs> um, if during, you know, when, when non-COVID times, because this time is different, but the first time we lived there, like if you wanted to get on a bus at, at you know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't, we didn't have a car. Um, we, I used all public transportation because their public transportation is incredible. Um, buses, subways, shared bikes, everything, anything you want available. Uber is really cheap. It's called Didi. Um, very easy. But um but yeah, I mean, you can it can get really crowded and, and the subways and the buses, but in, in general, it, it didn't bug me too much. Um, I I like the city life. I mean, the first time we moved there, you know, I'm 
always been living in the suburbs most of my life. So it was a little shock, but I, I absolutely loved it. I loved being able to hop downstairs to the little store to get my groceries and go to the wet markets and, you know, get fruits and vegetables and, and, you know, walk over to my friends or walk through the park or I, I just, I just really like it. And park life in China is, is fabulous. The older, older generation there spends a lot of their time in, in parks you know, dancing all their fun little dancing, doing Tai Chi, playing badminton. The, the men, old men walk their birds. And I mean, it's just a walk lot of their birds. Stuff. They walk their birds. Yes. Please explain. Um, uh, so they keep a lot of older, the older generation, they keep songbirds and they will go to the park and visit their friends the like, same time every day. And they take their little birds and their little uh, bird cages and they, they swing them. I don't know why they swing them. The birds like that. I don't know. Um, and then they'll meet in one place and hang up their birds in the bird cages all in the trees and then just, you know, chat like old people who do when they're retired. Um, there are all kinds of fun things like that. They, they, the tradition of the older generation there is just really the community feel of it, it's just amazing. I wish I wish we had that in, in this country because it would be fun to grow old that way. It's just, it's a much, much different experience in aging. But um, your second question, would I, so I, would I go back to China again? Would that be a choice to where I chose? No, I'm done. <laughs> I love China. It was fabulous. I am so glad that I had lived there. Um, if we had a really good business opportunity, of course, we would go back again and, and I would love it. I would be fine. Um, but I would really like to go somewhere else. <laughs> um, and Europe would be fabulous, but I don't see that in our future um, unless we've managed to retire and, you know, I don't know, teach English somewhere. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Where does, does Beijing remind you of anywhere else? Is it comparable to anywhere else that you've been? Um, Wow. Um, I mean, it, 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 it somewhat is to nothing in America, <laughs> absolutely nothing in America. Um, maybe a little bit Tokyo, only um, Tokyo is a little less, um, it's a word to describe it. There's more rules and etiquette in, in Japan. Um, China's a little bit sort of looser, um, a little more, a little dirtier. <laughs> Uh, which I actually kind of like. Um, no, I mean, a lot of Chinese cities, I could compare Beijing to a lot of other Chinese cities, but outside of that, it's a bit difficult. <laughs> yeah, I was curious. I have been to Tokyo, so I, I was actually curious if it reminded you, I was going to ask, like, is it super clean, like Tokyo, where the subway no. is like, you'd eat off the floor of the subway? <laughs> Tokyo, no. or maybe not off the floor, but the bathrooms are like a five-star hotel in the subway of Tokyo. It's crazy. No, no, no. Beijing is not like that. It's much, much better than it was. It, it's gotten a lot better in the last 10 years. In fact, the five, so we were gone five years in between. So we left in 2014 and we got back um, in 2019. And in those five years, it got a lot cleaner. It got a, a lot cleaner. Like the, you, I would have never used the public bathrooms uh, in 2014. I, I mean, you could smell them as you were walking by. You could, you could, oh my gosh, there must be a bathroom coming. And then when we got back in 2019, they were all very, very clean. Um, and like, I now I'd use them no problem. I mean, they're all squatty potties, but, but I don't have a problem with that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's gotten a lot better. They're definitely cleaning a lot of things up. Um, and, and then it's funny because that has, 
pluses and minuses because we, we like things to be clean and we like things to be efficient, but they're also getting rid of a lot of fun cultural stuff uh, in the process of doing that. The um, Beijing is known for, for its hutongs areas, which is, um, hutong literally means alley. And I think they were built, I'm gonna get this wrong and my historian friend is going to get mad at me, but um, I think they were built by the Mongols. Like, and they're basically courtyard homes with narrow alleys between them. And they're just these squares of courtyard houses where you would, you would enter and then there would be open space and then like building. And then you go through that and there'd be another building. And this is, and they sort of sectioned off it. It was the, the way they, they lived. It's called a suhu yuan, which is a, a four courtyard garden or something like that. Um, and, and, that, and it was all kind of sectioned off and, they, and these, they were built out of stone, one story, um, slate, those nice slate roofs, you know, with the pitched on it and a very, and, you know, Asian accents and things like that. They're just, there's a lot of gorgeous architecture and history in these. Um, and they used to be where fairly wealthy people lived, some of them, but over the, the centuries, really, they've gotten subdivided. And, you know, so one family owned them and two sons split it. And then they split it with their two sons and all of this. And now they're, you know, each one has like 20 people in it, which is kind of ridiculous. And some people were um, operating stores out of the front windows. So you could like climb up to the window and they'd sell you a, a soda or something like that. Um, and the the walls of the front on the on the actual alleyway would have all these signs for, you know, restaurants or whatever was inside, but people were also living in there and you'd walk into the courtyards and there'd be trash, just, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure, old bikes, whatever piled up. And then they've been getting, but it, they've been getting rid of a lot of that. Um, walling up the fronts, they call it the, the brickening is what uh, expats call it. Cause they just sort of bricked up the whole front so people couldn't run their businesses um, and took a little bit of the, charm out of it because when you look at old pictures of Beijing or just or newer pictures of Beijing anyway they, they love these hutongs with their red lanterns and their gray stones and they're just some it's a lovely part of town to to bike through and to walk through and and people live there they're communities that people have lived in for for generations um and they're they're bricking them up <laughs> a little bit tossing people out tearing them down and moving the people out um to fancy, not fancy, but nice new apartment complexes, but far out of town and breaking up the communities. And it's a bit of a, you know, it's a thing, right? It's, it's a, you know, sometimes the people want to go and they're happy to have their nice new apartment, but sometimes, you know, they're, they're not and they miss their community. And, um, but yeah, it's an issue, but there's still a lot of those available just to, to wander through in Beijing. And, and it is, it is a very fun part of Beijing. Why do you think they're doing the brickening? I think because too many people are living in there, too many businesses that were un, unregulated, um, and that's a tourist area and they want it to be nicer. I mean, the, the area was never, these, these places don't have their own bathrooms. So they have community bathrooms that are down the way. So too many, too much stress on those bathrooms. Um, it was just, it was like people trying to live in an apartment complex that only had one floor and just stuffing more and more people in. So it is for everybody's health and safety better that not that many people live in there. But at the same time, it's, it's sort of this cultural Beijing experience, these, these hutongs. So it's, you know, you know, take it and everything you time you take something away, you, you, you know, gain something else, I guess.
I love that you're doing a historical like study group, historian mm -hmm. study group. Um, did you, were you learning specifically about like the history of Beijing or Chinese culture in general or? Um, it, it was the history of modern China which started in, in this particular class back in like the 1600s, so not that modern. Um, and it was actually so when COVID happened, all the international students got kicked out, right? The student visas were revoked and, and everybody got sent home. So there was one particular historian who had already been doing, he's American, had been doing walks um, and talks around on like weekends and stuff, who pretty much lost his day job because there were no students for him to teach at the university. So he actually approached me because I had this group of women that was um, very active and a lot of doing a lot of things and asked if we wanted to do this lecture series. And it was supposed to only be six, six or seven lectures in the beginning. And we just, when it finished, we just loved it so much. It was just like, a, it was a group of about 15 women and we meet every other week in one of our homes and and basically just learn about some aspect of Chinese history. And, and this particular guy, he was really good about, cause he, he's married to a Chinese woman, he speaks fluent Chinese. So he kind of is a really good um, way to see sort of both sides a little bit more than, cause I don't speak Chinese. I tried many, 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 many hours. It is exceptionally difficult and I have given up multiple times. Um, so anytime I can talk to somebody who, who does speak Chinese, who has a better grasp of some of the stuff going on around me, it's, it's a, it's a really good experience for me. So he, he was great and he, you know, he'd lecture us for, for a little while, but we'd ask questions and he'd give us readings and, you know, most of us went to university and we're very excited to, to, to have a little bit of intellectual and, uh, engagement since we most of us weren't working and you know we we do a lot of lunches and kinds of things and that can get a little boring um, so this was a, a fun fun way to engage on a, on a different level that sounds amazing I know uh, like I was going to ask you how the language barrier is in China or in Beijing and because it blew my mind. I remember I, you know, I had studied French in the FSI system. And I think I got to level two in maybe four weeks doing the nine to five. And then I heard that to get to level two in Chinese, it takes two years. And I was like, what? How can it be four weeks for French and two years for the same? And level two isn't good. Level two is like, people are looking, you know, it's not a great level to be at. It's just like, you're just beginning your language journey. And mm -hmm. I'm like, that alone would make me not want to learn Chinese for people yeah. to fully realize how hard it is. So yeah. What was the, what was like the, your language learning approach and what was the, how was the language barrier in general, like living in China as an American? Um, so, so I guess as an American, it was fine because, well, as a white American, it was fine because nobody expected me to speak the language. Um, so I, there, in fact, I got into a situation sort of towards the end where I spoke enough of the language that I actually stopped speaking it because people thought I would, I spoke it. But my issue was always that I didn't understand anything that was told to me. So I, I can actually usually in Chinese, express most of the things I want, need, whatever, all that. Um, but I have a hard time understanding when people speak back to me. 
um, and, and, and I fault the Chinese language learning system for this because there's not enough listening. As, as a, an ESL teacher, I, I understand the problem here. They, they are, I mean, you know, they want you to learn the words, they want you to learn the grammar, but there's not enough talking and, and listening, at least not in my experience. I mean, I've taken so many different Chinese classes at so much time, and I, I finally gave up when COVID happened because the only way I could do it was online one-on-one. -on -one. And to me, language learning is best done in a group of people where you can listen to other people, hear their mistakes, learn from their mistakes as well as your own. Um, and when COVID happened, that was never, that was not gonna happen anymore. So I, I kind of did, I did the online classes to the point where she was pushing me to level three. So I understand what you mean with level two. Like I actually sort of completed level three, but if anybody talked to me, I just was like, uh. <laughs> So um, I didn't want to go back. I wouldn't want to start level four. But I mean, the great thing about China is a, everybody has a phone. Everybody uses their phone for everything. Your money, every, your ID, everything is on this phone. Everything is through WeChat. And you know, there's translations apps and everybody has a translation app. Um, not a ton of people speak English, but everybody understands that I speak English. So they all try. Um, and again, because I look like the way I look, they don't expect me to speak Chinese. Now, if I were a Chinese American who came, and I had a lot of friends who had this problem, you know, like, okay, so here's the, here's the situation. I've got my a kid, my eight-year-old little boy, and he's adorable, he's blonde, and, and Chinese people, oh, he's so cute, he's so blonde, taking pictures with my kid. And then one of my good friends um, is Chinese American, and she's got her two kids, same age, my kid says, ni hao, and all the Chinese people, oh, look, this little white kid, he speaks Chinese. The other kids, you know, why don't your kids speak Chinese? It's like, they're not even Chinese, but they look like they should be Chinese. So there was a total double standard going on there, which I, I recognized very early. Um, but from my situation, people were always, almost always very patient with me and had very low expectations. And when I could speak a little bit, generally got pretty excited about the fact that I even tried. <laughs> so, um, so that's a good, that's a good thing. But, but yeah, I'm not, I took French in high school and, you know, it's so much easier because there's, there's words that are called cognates that, you yeah, know, yeah. that are the same, right? That you recognize, you recognize nothing. And in fact, the first year I studied, I, your brain keeps trying to make parallels between your language and Chinese, between English and Chinese. And they're just, just aren't any and you can't read it because the written language is characters and that's completely unhelpful um and then the tones forget it forget yeah, it yeah. because this word ma is ma 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 you know five different words in fact probably 40 different words how if you don't grow up listening to that it's very difficult i mean now both my kids my daughter's fluent um, in Chinese because she, because she spent a year there in high school. She, she actually, so she was there, um, for middle school and one year of high school. But then when we came back to America, the first time she took a year off of school, high school here between her junior and senior year and went back to China, lived with the Chinese family and went to a Chinese high school. Oh, wow. So she, yeah, yeah. It's an incredible experience. Um, so she's fluent and my son is, uh, who has lived there total of five years of his life. Um, but he was, you know, eight to 11 and then he took a five-year gap. So he, he started over in high school and, but now he's sitting in college and now he's getting pretty good at it too. 
Um, so that, that that young brain helps <laughs> a lot as well. But I just don't. I gave up a long time ago. <laughs> And I didn't need it. With all the translations apps, I mean, you can take pictures of the characters now and it translates, you know, your phone translates everything for you. You can, you know, hit the translation while somebody's talking and it tells you what they're saying. You don't need it to get along. So I quit. <laughs> and I, it was just a lot of time and effort that I could have spent doing something else. <laughs> yeah. How we, you know, we hear a lot about WeChat here in the United States as this like, god app that does everything and elon musk like wants to turn twitter into like wechat and what was the experience of using chinese what was the experience of like using chinese apps also like the internet because we hear the stereotype that the internet is limited in china you can't like do certain things so what was that technology piece like for you so um so WeChat is amazing and it's awesome and it's great. Um, but the reason it's amazing and awesome and great is because everybody is on it. Everybody in China has a WeChat account. Everybody uses it for everything, which is great. You don't have to say, okay, I wanna get in touch with Sally. Okay, she's on Facebook with me. So I have to Facebook message her, but you know, then, well, but I wanna get in touch with Sam. Okay, I text Sam. You know, everybody's on a different platform here, right? Everybody's on WeChat, um, which is great, but it's a monopoly, you know, and that's and it's controlled by the government and it is completely watched. Like there are words you cannot say in WeChat. Um, one of the things everybody has, all expats have in, in, in China is a VPN, uh, virtual something network, private, private network. network. Yeah, um, which you just set, put that sucker on, you turn your app on or whatever and tell it you're in, LA or whatever, and then you can get on Facebook and all of those things that are blocked. It is not difficult in China at all to do that. It is very easy to get VPNs. Chinese people do it as well, but they are against the law now. So if you talk about it on Facebook, or I'm sorry, on WeChat, if you talk about, oh, turn your VPN on because you want to go to this site, then that will get flagged and somebody will look at it. And if it happens enough on your chat, your chat will get deleted. So, um, yeah, so it, so the government is watching. So you were used things. So for VPN, and we did um, very precious necklace or somebody called it uh, your Veep or there were a whole bunch of different things people called it, but you didn't say, you didn't write VPN on your chats. Because um, the, way, the way WeChat works that, um, that no app that I have right now does, is you can make these groups of people. So for instance, like you um, with your Charlotte Saboon, you could have a group of your followers all in this chat and you would use that to promote yourself and tell people when you had new episodes out or things like that. Um, but at the same time, you could individually talk to each of those people and those people could have that but not have it turned on all the time so that they could look at it whenever they want. It's just a very, very flexible way to market things, to contact groups of people, um, to, to, if you go out for lunch with people, everybody paying, you could split the bill. I mean, very, very easily. Everybody's paying on WeChat anyway, so you can send money back and forth. So it's like, you know, it's your Zelle app and your banking app and uh, it's, well, not your banking app because it goes through your bank card, but it's, everything plus you can do use it like facebook too and post pictures i didn't really do that but um 
but a lot of people do. So it's it's a cool app. But again, it's a monopoly. I generally don't approve of those, especially when they're controlled by the government. Yeah. And and we and we couldn't really do that here anyway because of banking laws. I think it would be hard. Um, this and security is an issue with with it. Um, I never I used it with a Chinese bank card that never had that much money on it, so it was not that big of an issue. But they were constantly were getting phone messages through the phone company they would send texts to everybody about frauds and being careful about banking fraud and things like that so um it's an issue what was it that was like? one part of your question i feel like there was another part of that question i forgot to answer oh no i think you answered it all but okay. um what was it like living under that kind of surveillance state like a more overt, because I do think the U.S. is a surveillance state also, but a more overt surveillance yeah. state. I mean, most of the time it didn't really bother me because I wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, it, there are, you know, a lot of pluses and minuses. It too. Like I get, I understand privacy and I understand people's problems with face recognition. Um, but at the same time, sometimes it's it's really helpful. Like you could use it as a key to get into my apartment and just show my face to the screen. Um, and you know, and somebody did something wrong, like stole something. You, nobody stole anything. There was no crime. There was no violent crime because they got caught because there were cameras everywhere. You certainly wouldn't do it against a white person because that would make you a bigger target. So I mean, we just like my twelve-year-old daughter would walk around at one a.m. No, I didn't leave my, I, I didn't let my 12 year old daughter walk around at 1am, but she could have, my, she did when she was older, when she came to visit us, you know, and I didn't worry at all because A, the punishments are harsh and scary and B, you're going to get caught. So people don't do stuff. So there is that. Um, but, you know, I do believe in privacy. I, I never felt, I never felt personally repressed by it. I did with some of the COVID restrictions when they came down um everybody did uh, that's why there were actually protests in china there at the end which is a huge deal um there weren't very many and it was you know we're talking hundreds of people not even thousands probably but still just the fact that there were those was was huge um that that era felt repressive when you guys were all over covid and had gotten through it and the world was recovering and we were still you know, couldn't leave really. And at that point we couldn't leave Beijing because just getting back into Beijing was a quarantine situation that started to feel repressive. And I think that's part of the reason when you ask me, would I go back to China? I, I say, I don't want to, I, I think I kind of lost, I don't know. I, I had a love for it. I really, and I still do I, a little bit, but I lost some, uh, feeling, I don't exactly know the right word. I don't trust them anymore, I guess. Um, and, I, and part of it was when we did, when, did, when COVID did come, like we were testing every day and that was, that was not uncommon every what? two days, whatever, to go to get tests. And it was so easy. You walked downstairs, you got in a line and maybe 10 people in it. They swabbed your throat real quick, you know, did a QR code, swabbed your throat real quick. And, and you were done. So it was like um, literally like five to 10 minutes of my time. It was not that big of a deal. And I don't care what they're doing with my swabs, my DNA, whatever. They had that to begin with. You have to give them that when you come live there, they take a blood sample. Um, but that didn't bother me. But um, when people started to get COVID, 
those tests weren't coming back. The results weren't coming back. Like my husband, and I both had COVID and we both got tested probably when we had COVID and we never got a positive test back. And I never heard about anybody who did. So it was like, they, at that point that they, they, there was no honesty, you know? And when it started to come down, when they, when they kind of decided, okay, it's, we're going to rip the bandaid off and everybody, we're just going to let it come. They, they didn't tell us. And I don't know what it was. Like, I felt like I'd been on this journey uh, with COVID in China and this really interesting experience. And I was like, I couldn't read the last chapter mm. because I didn't really know what was going on. I mean, but I finally did figure it out as all my friends started getting COVID and they weren't, you know, in the, in the past, if somebody had gotten COVID, you were hauled off to a hotel or, or a quarantine hospital, really. Um, and that wasn't happening anymore. They were, they were letting it go. But it just didn't, we never, we never really got, nobody ever said anything about it. It just sort of happened and you had to figure out what was going on on your own. And for some reason that pissed me off. Uh, yeah, I would I imagine. I think it's my, my background as a biologist and knowing that this was going to happen at some point. And then when it did start happening, like not getting the data, not getting the details, not, not knowing, just frustrated the heck out of me and I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back we were on our way home anyway we were on a, a four-year um, package and that was it was done anyway so that also might have something to do with it and when you know you're leaving a place you have a tendency to focus more on the negatives um than on the positives so that was definitely part of it as well but man I, I still I don't know it was frustrating I can imagine what was it? Did you guys also have a period of like fear? Because in the States, we had so much fear for a while. Like people were genuinely extremely frightened and everybody was holding yeah. like a lot of fear in our bodies. We just didn't know what was going to happen or how contagious it was. And, you know, I don't think we had that. I think Chinese people did um, when it first happened, when it was going on in Wuhan. Um, I was naive at that point and kind of an idiot. Now, Chinese people had, had been through, I guess, it was, what was it, the bird flu? There were SARS, SARS, years before. And I mean, like we had a neighbor who, I don't think she left her house for a couple months in the very beginning, um, and which was entirely voluntary. I mean, a, a lot of people didn't. I, we would go on buses and be the only people on these buses. And I mean, I told you these buses could be so packed that people are like, you know, pushing themselves in and there was nobody in the buses. And this was in the beginning. Um, and, but I was, I was naive at that point. And was, I thought everybody was overreacting and this was stupid. This was before it had hit uh, the US. Um, and later on when we did sort of figure it out, China had already isolated it and become zero COVID. And so then we didn't really have to fear that much. I mean, we did a little bit we were more fearing about somebody getting through and then us not necessarily getting COVID from that person because we're, we're talking like, I mean, in a couple of years there, China had like 500 cases, you know, after the initial, or not China, Beijing had like 500 cases. There's just over years of, a tw of 20 million people. The, the idea of catching it was like not, not really even gonna happen. But like, I had a friend who got locked down in her apartment once for two weeks, just her personally because she went to a grocery store where a delivery driver who had COVID had been, no, he came after her even, which is ridiculous, came like an hour after her. So she, this is how strict they were. Like they track, cause they have, you know, all of this lack of privacy. 
anybody who had COVID, they tracked everything they did for like a week before everybody that came into contact them was going to get quarantined. Now she was just at home, but like close contacts, they ended up in hospitals. Um, even secondary close contacts, it was to secondary, like close contacts of close contacts would end up in hospitals that I was afraid of. Um, but I wasn't actually afraid of getting COVID. So it, it was a little bit <laughs> different, um, but no, in general, I think you guys had it much, much worse than I did. Um, I can just tell having been back here and listening to people talk about how isolated they felt and how, I mean, like you said, like people were holding it in their bodies, like how, and how it has changed, especially younger people, how they deal. And I mean, it in with life, with people, with interacting, um, it, I think that was much worse for you guys than it, than it was in China. The, the repression of, 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 of the virus was such that, I mean, yes, okay, we felt like we were a little confined, but you guys, it was the, the, the fear of actually getting it and, you know, getting long COVID or dying or things like that, I think was much, much worse for you guys. Yeah, I mean, it, like thinking back on it, it was such a crazy and unnecessarily fearful time mm -hmm. in America. So I'm glad that you guys didn't have to go through that there. Um, I think um, Americans will be surprised to hear that because <laughs> we do have that impression of like, oh, everybody's wearing like hazmat suits and getting nose swabs every two hours or something crazy. <laughs> um. <laughs> the nose swabs were not fun, but honestly, I had the nose swabs done only um, when I traveled to, out of country, that's the only time they did the nose swabs. Every other time it was, it was uh, throat swabs because you don't have to train somebody as much to do the throat swabs. And they had literally tens of thousands of people doing this testing every day. So um, they couldn't be doing nose swabs. Yeah. When I don't think Americans would allow a city to get locked down like that, like no, to be able to not. leave and exit the city so that must have been an interesting experience to deal with also because what were there just like roadblocks on the way out well you could leave i should replace it we we could absolutely leave it's just if we wanted to come back mm. it, we might not even be able to come back so so there was a period of time and and they were especially especially beijing and especially around the time of the winter olympics because the last thing they wanted was for beijing to have any covid during the winter olympics so they basically they made it so hard to come back that you just didn't leave does that make sense so it's yeah. so like even if you went on vacation like at one point i remember okay well you can go on vacation if you want but there are if there are any cases in the city in which you go you can't come back until you've been somewhere for two weeks where there are no cases so it's like okay well you can take that trip if you want to but <laughs> you might not even be able to get back i mean it was such that like you had to be careful so so Beijing is a, a province, it's a city, but it's also a province of, of, of China. And like, you had to be careful when you were going out hiking that your cell phone didn't ping like in the neighboring province, oh, wow. in a cell phone tower in the neighboring province, because you, it would pop up and you, you know, you, you needed your QR code to get in anywhere you wanted to go. We had this, like, you had to scan and show a QR code with your health kit, which was also, of course, through WeChat. 
So everywhere you went, every grocery store, every restaurant, any museums, anything like that would have a QR code that you scanned and then you'd show somebody um, that you were healthy. But if you pinged outside and like Hubei, that would come up red. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it never happened to me. It never happened to anybody. I knew real well, not really. Um, but you see, we just, you didn't take the risk. So you just stayed in Beijing. And Beijing has a lot of things to do, a lot of amazing food, um, so many opportunities for fun stuff to do that it wasn't really much of a hardship. <laughs> But. Yeah, what what are the favorite like leisure activities there? Because when you said hiking, I wouldn't have even imagined like being close enough to hiking in like oh, yeah. a city of that many people. Like what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 Beijing is the city and it's also the environs around like the Great Wall. I mean, mm -hmm. you go hike the Great Wall. I mean, the parts that you see on, you know, you see the sort of the restored parts, but there's all these unrestored parts that you can um, go hiking and camping overnight and all fun kinds of fun stuff to do up there. All lots of streams and mountain areas. And it, it's, it's Beijing is a bit of a bowl, which is why pollution can be an issue because when, when bad air comes, it kind of actually gets stuck in the bowl. But the bowl is made um, by these mountains on like probably, you know, two thirds of it is surrounded by mountains. Um, they're not high mountains or anything like that, but they're fun to hike. Uh, and the and the Great Wall is in as parts of it or up in the in those mountains, and that's always fun. But I mean, it, anything that you can think of to do, almost you can do in Beijing. You want to ride a horse, you want to play tennis, you want to ultimate frisbee is becoming huge there now. My son was an ultimate frisbee player. Um, anything you want, you can pretty much do slash get. You know, I used to ask my Chinese friends, "Is there anything you want me to bring back from the United States?" Like, no, we can get it all ourselves, thanks. And that is pretty much true there's a starbucks on every corner you know it's far more western than than people think it is we don't have any oceans and not a lot of pools and a lot of the pools are indoors which is kind of a bummer so i would fault it for that but otherwise there's there's an awful lot to do and then you know temples and museums and all kinds of fun cultural stuff if, if you're into that kind of thing which i totally am <laughs> Yeah, I'm surprised there's no outdoor pools because doesn't it get pretty hot there? Yeah, it does. I mean, Chinese people are not big swimmers. Um, so that's part of it. I, I think they will get to be more of them. Um, but but yeah, and they're also a little bit afraid of the sun. White white skin is is very prized there. So like I've literally been to the beach and seen women completely covered, including like a mask where just their eyes and nose and mouth show. It's like a bathing suit mask, but they're completely covered because they don't want their skin to darken. So uh, that's part of that. <laughs> um, they prefer to, to swim inside when they do swim and they tend to swim for exercise, not so much for leisure. It's, it's just not culturally as prominent of a fun, you know, hang out by the pool with your cocktail type place uh, type thing as it is here. What are the coolest things that are there that we don't have here? Besides birds, besides people walking their birds. Besides people walking their birds. Oh, wow, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, the Asian food is amazing. Like not just Chinese food. I mean, and Chinese food there is very different than Chinese food here. Um, what we get here, we, I, I've decided I'm calling the food of the Chinese diaspora, diaspora. 
Um, it's just different Americanized Chinese food. And I, and I get where it came from and I like it too, but Chinese food in China is different and better. Um, you know, but even like the Vietnamese food and, and the sushi and all kinds of things like that. Um, it's, it's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, and I mean, I just love walking around there. So, and, and part of this is just big city life. Like you, you walk outside and there's always people and Chinese people don't really, I don't know if it is, if I can say they don't care as much about, I shouldn't generalize about Chinese people, but um, they're a little bit more free with, with what they wear, with what they do. I mean, they're in, and, and life is just a little bit more whimsical there. Like the other day I was walking out of my complex and there was a, um, a Meituan driver, a delivery driver who's delivering food to somebody in front of me. And he had his helmet on because he's, they're all on scooters. Everybody's on a scooter. Um, I mean, a moped, like a Vespa type scooter. Um, and I, I looked at his helmet and it's a, it was a helmet that was made to look like a rice pot, like a rice cooker. Like it had dials and it had the little spatula stuck on it, just like a Chinese rice, rice cooker. I mean, and they just, everything, there's these funny little things about everything that I don't know. And it's hard, hard to describe. People just don't care as much. So they, they, about what people think of them, I think, um, you know, they, they'll wear what they want to wear and, um, a little bit do what they want to do. <laughs> the spitting I could do without, um, and I kind of, you know, they walk their birds and they, you know, dance, they do their big, the old ladies do their dances in the parks. And, you know, it's, there's, there seems to be sort of a, a freedom of expression somewhat. I mean, which is funny because lots of ways you can't express yourself at all in China. <laughs> so, sort of, it's hard to describe, but, but yeah, I just, I, walking the streets was always just fun. I mean, it's just every time you go out, it was an adventure. It's like, what, what am I going to see today? And maybe that's just because it was a new and different culture for me. But even after, after having lived there six years, I, I still felt like that. Every time I got on my bike, it's like, ooh, what am I going to see today? Is there, is there going to be, a, you know, a, a, a moped laden with styrofoam, you know, mountainous styrofoam because it's a recycling guy? Um, or um, the knife guy. So they have a guy that goes around. He's always this old guy on this ancient bicycle um, who comes around and he has metal plates and they're the sharpening plates that he clangs together to announce that he's there and you go down and he sharpens your knives. Um, there's just, it was just interesting, you know, different from America. But yeah, there's probably a lot of other things I could talk about that I liked. Um, that, that we don't have here, but but there's a lot of things we have here that I like. Taobao also is quite nice. Everything's cheap. I mean, it's also cheap quality, but it's also cheap. <laughs> I was gonna ask about the cost of living, like in general, like, you know, how much is a, a nice apartment in Beijing? Like mm -hmm. how much does it cost to live there? Could Americans even go live there? You have to have like a really, like a work permit kind of situation. Yeah, you right now, and I, I think they've reinstated the the tourist visa right now. But you get ninety days on a tourist visa. Um, no, to you, to get to just go live there, you have to have an employer who's sponsored your work permit, um, or be related to somebody who does. Um, but yeah, it's it's Beijing is expensive to live in. An, like the apartment part is expensive. We could never have done that without my husband's company paying for the apartment. Our apartment was about $5,000 a month. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, and it wasn't huge, um, but it was, it was, had a great view. It, had a, it was in a good, good place with a really great view. Um, and, you know, that wouldn't, we wouldn't do that here. <laughs> um, but you can live cheaper if you live out of town more. Um, and definitely teachers do it. You know, there's a lot of, of you know, Westerners who go and teach in America and, and, and they do sometimes get their housing paid for. Um, but even then they probably could could do that it, it but the, the apartments are expensive starbucks coffee is expensive anything western is expensive but if you just want to make yourself some noodles or like i could go down and get an awesome meal for like two bucks mm-hmm. no problem easy um you mean just just behind my house like all right we had this fancy apartment complex which really wasn't that fancy it's getting old um but you know comparatively it is but right behind it we still had some old kind of hutong areas and i mean i could get a a donkey meat sandwich for like a dollar and a half um you could get some some balza some buns for you know pennies and so you know that kind of thing because i had a fresh noodle guy who was making fresh noodles all the time and i could get like this giant pound of fresh noodles for a dollar that kind of thing always blew me away how cheap it was Wow. What does a donkey meat sandwich taste like? Corned beef. Almost <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've always wondered why do they call the wet markets the wet markets? Because everything is wet because they're always washing it down with hoses and then this stuff is leaking because they're so messy. And there aren't nearly like when when we were there the first time we had a wet market right behind our house and it was this traditional old wet market where you know, I didn't buy chicken there in the summer because the chicken might've been sitting on that table for who knows how long. Um, but I never had any health issues or anything buying stuff from there. But those are almost all gone. In fact, everything like that is gone. That is when, when I said that they cleaned up the bathrooms, they also took out the wet markets. Um, obviously they hadn't done that in Wuhan. Um, although that wet market, I actually did visit the wet market where the virus started. I couldn't go in just the outside and it was an indoor market as well. So now, now all the wet markets in China are inside and I have much better, um, sanitation requirements. So Beijing has definitely changed that. Um, but the rest of China has a little bit of catching up to do in that regard. Yeah. I wasn't going to ask you about, um, COVID and wet markets and that kind of stuff. But since you are a biologist and seem, oh, here go my dogs, speaking of animals. Oh yeah, my cat's staring at us. <laughs> must be the mailman outside. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Um, let me just wait for them to simmer down a second. I'll edit this part out. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> usually comes here in the middle of the day unless, except the mailman. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't going to ask you about this, but since you do seem like you have interest, um, what was going on in China as far as like theories on COVID? Because in the U.S., we really got inundated with, you know, different sides of the political spectrum Mm -hmm. telling us where COVID had come from and where they thought, you know, lab leak, engineered, bioweapon, wet market, like attack on so you guys got the same thing we got the same thing i mean china will never admit that it started in china um i have one of my good chinese friends her parents who she's from wuhan actually um her parents honestly believe that americans brought the virus to wuhan during the military games 
which was right before that. Um, and I mean, and these are educated people, they believe this. Um, there's a lot of bad, I, I get, nobody knows and China is not gonna admit it. So, so yeah, so Chinese people are gonna think whatever they've heard in their bad sources of media that they're looking at. Um, but no, I didn't really, I mean, I heard everything that you've heard. I was pretty much looking at Western media about it anyway. Um, I was very much subscribed to the whole, oh, well, there's a, you know, animal testing facility right near the wet market, but uh, which seems to me from my biological training to be the clearest uh, option, but that seems to have been disproved. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I wish people would just stop blaming anybody about it. It doesn't matter where it started. Yeah. These things are gonna happen, then they're gonna start in different places. And it's not that place's fault. It is that place's fault if they don't deal with it in a manner that is acceptable, which I, Wuhan may or may not have tried to do. Uh, it depends on who you talk to. Um, but you know, it, it, it is what it is and we just have to deal with it as a nation and hopefully as a world, but hopefully we've learned something. <laughs> I, I'll be, I'm curious to see if this happens again in my lifetime, which I hope it doesn't, how the world reacts, how China reacts, how America reacts. I, you know, I don't know that America will react much differently than it did in the first place, except that people will probably be a lot quicker to put on a mask because I think people kind of got used to that here. I know nobody liked it, but at least they got used to it. Um, whereas Chinese people put on their masks pretty fast because they were used to SARS. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, there was so much in the beginning, like we didn't know how it was transmitted, you know, it, it, that kind of thing. I, and I remember very early on, it was killing people, it was killing men at a much higher rate in China than it was ki killing women. And people were like, oh, you know, it's the virus has something against men. Or <laughs> but the fact of the matter is it's a respiratory disease and Chinese men almost all smoke and Chinese women don't. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's put them more at risk of dying. And as soon as it moved out of America, people stopped, stopped that storyline. But it, yeah, it's, it was interesting. It, it, it's been, it's been interesting to see the two cultures deal with it for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is the, what is like the cross population of the media like for like Americans don't watch Chinese television but do Chinese people watch a lot of American television or there's really no exchange? And it, by TV, like they watch Friends. Um, they like Friends. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the last time I was there was that you could actually go to a coffee shop where it was exactly like the set of Friends and all the waitresses were named Rachel. It's really funny, that's gone. <laughs> um, but they don't get any news. They don't get any American news. And, or if they do, um it's they bleep out like it literally will go silent or dark during anything that they've you know decided is not appropriate for the chinese public to hear so yeah it, in general most chinese people don't see any of that unless they're keyed in enough to have a vpn and um and be using it to 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 explore other options which most people aren't 
Yeah, I guess I was wondering more about like, not the news, but like pop culture, like fr- things mm-hmm. like Friends. And like, I recently watched um, the Three Body Problem series, the oh. Chinese television show. Um, and my partner and I were commenting, like, this is the first Chinese television show we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see, you get a lot of Korean shows mm-hmm. now on Netflix. Like the Korean shows are very popular with the younger generation, like my daughter's um, 15 and she's constantly watching K, K dramas. And mm-hmm. but like, you, I don't know. I don't think many Americans have watched a, te- a Chinese television show. And I think nah. it, would really, it would probably really benefit both cultures to have more like pop culture exchange maybe not I don't know your face went well I I loved I don't think they'd watch it I think I think that Chinese television would be cheesy and stupid to most Americans the three body problem is a little bit different that has kind of taken off here um but I think a lot of what like I know that Chinese people watch are like soap operas you know Mm. maybe I mean but like set in imperial times with like empresses and stuff um they're I mean, I'm, I'm out of my depth here because I do not watch Chinese television. So I, I may be completely wrong about this. So Chinese people should, should tell me I'm wrong. But most of what I've seen on their television, most Americans would find cheesy. Um, like when they have their New Year's shows and stuff like that, it's like, God. Um, <laughs> so I think that may be why you don't see it. They do, they do get a lot of, of um, like they watch like the big Marvel movies and things like that. But I don't know about TV. I really I don't know it's very different tastes like very different because I was very impressed with the three body series I was not cheesy at all I thought it was I was like they must have subsidized the production of it because it it was a huge production and I don't think they spent very much money on it or I guess just I was very impressed like one scene in the show I was like this might be the craziest scene I've ever seen in anything I've ever watched really wow I read it. I'm going to have to go back and see it and, and watch it. That'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I probably shouldn't even speak to Chinese television because I don't really know. Um, I, I did watch a lovely movie. I forgot the name of it. It would be helpful if I had that. Um, it was a great movie about uh, villagers in China, um, but it got banned shortly after I watched it. Yeah. So, um, but it was like it was winning nas- international awards um but yeah well I guess I mean I got when I was when I talked about watching that show and even reading the book like in on social media I did get messages from people being like oh you shouldn't even watch that because it's supporting the C the CCP and like the CCP has the genocide with the Muslims Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you shouldn't even be watching any of this but I'm just kind of like, well, if we don't see anything, how do we learn about anything? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've like, do people talk about those issues on a, on a regular basis in Beijing or is it really like hush hush? Oh, like the Uyghurs? Yeah. You, you, mm. Well, I mean, we privately, we talk about that but publicly you, you wouldn't, um, you would never talk to a Chinese person about that. You would never say anything or use any of those words on WeChat at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we were all, I mean, we we're all educated people who were all aware of the problem and all aware of 
what it means for us to be there. And we did have many conversations about this. I wanted to go to Xinjiang because um, we could have gone and seen it, not not seen that part of it. We would have been um, not able to go to the camps or anything like that, of course. And like journalists had a really rough time trying to go there unless they were on there for a specific project, in which case they would have been minded. But um, but I still wanted to go. And my husband was like, no, you can't go. You're you're supporting, you know, the that the oppression of the Uyghurs and like, dude, we're exploit, we're, we're supporting that by being here in general. Um, and I, I mean, but no country is perfect. I know I didn't like living in the US when we were caging children at the border either, but, um, but this is my life. So, you know, I speak out against it as much as I can. But the fact of the matter is when you live in a foreign country, you're there as guests. And, you know, you, I'm not there to solve their problems, can't solve their problems, don't know the whole story, although I know enough. Um, so yeah, it was not the easiest thing for us to talk about, but we did try to because we all understood. We all understood. But yeah, you get over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you gotta, you can't, yeah, it's like bigger than you are. And then you meet lovely people on an individual basis and mm -hmm. you're there bridging those gaps, just being there and having people get to know you as an yep. American and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I'd love to travel around China, but you do hear that you like, if you travel around China, you're going to, as a tourist, you're going to get minded. So I wonder like, how much is the minding? I, I think that probably happened to me more than I thought it would. I mean, Beijing has a lot of foreigners in it. You can't mind everybody. And my husband works for a Chinese company. I think like my friends who were diplomats, they got minded. That's different. Um, and there were a couple of times when we were in groups that, um, we were, you know, sort of set aside, like, what are you doing here? You know, kind of things. And, and, and it led to some awkward situations, especially during COVID when we weren't supposed to be getting together as groups at all. But, um, but yeah, in general, I never felt that. Like there was one on my very last trip, we went to Macau um, a couple months ago. And I think there might've been somebody that was following us a little bit there, but he couldn't have kept up with us anyway. <laughs> I don't know exactly. I mean, Macau is different, right? Because Macau is like Hong Kong in, and in that it you know, was a, a Portuguese co uh, a colony and people are used to more freedoms and those freedoms are going away. So that's a place where you know, it's an issue just like um, Hong Kong. Um, so, but I personally didn't feel that ever. I'm not gonna say it didn't happen to me. There weren't, I mean, but you know, they're not gonna spy on my husband because he works for a Chinese company and they can do that at work. <laughs> it's not, um, that's, that's not really an issue. And, and I was never a threat, I guess. I mean, I'm sure there's a file on me somewhere, mm -hmm. but yeah. probably pretty thin, um, but yeah. Did you ever feel like your group got infiltrated? No. Like no. No, honestly, there weren't a lot of Chinese people. I have, I have one really good Chinese friend who's married to a Frenchman, um, and then several other like Chinese background, but you know, Filipino or Malaysian. Um, like, I, I think we didn't have all that many Chinese people in our little group of expats. Um, but no, I never felt like. I mean, they would have been bored out of their mind 
I think. <laughs> I mean, I guess the lecture group would be the only thing that might have ended up being a little bit dicey, but most of those lectures he had given in public, like I was one at a brewery, I remember. Um, so I don't, I don't think, I don't think we were much of a target. Oh, speaking of breweries, and that's good that you were, didn't have that happen because that would be intense <laughs> and awkward also. Um, <laughs> speaking of breweries, I, I had I put the fact that I was going to interview uh, an American woman who had been an expat in China for many years and asked if anybody had any questions. And one of the questions was, what is the nightlife like in China? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm 50 years old, so my nightlife ends at about 10 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you two perspectives. Um, my night, I mean, it was it's fun. It's as fun as you want it to be. And, and I'm sure there's a fabulous seedy side to it as well. I have no idea about that. I mean, my daughter used to, when she would come visit us, she she went out clubbing until like 4 a.m. And, and as a white girl, my God, they just, they, she didn't have to pay for anything. Um, and there's definitely a big club scene. I have no idea about that. Never did it. A couple of my friends did it just to, to see what it was like. Yeah, not into that. Um, my, my, we're more brewery people. I'm, my husband is a big fan of beer. So, so we, we checked out a lot of the breweries. There was one music club we liked to go to that, that had expat bands that would play. Like there was a, a red hot chili peppers cover band kind of thing that would go by. And it was this, almost it reminded me of what like a speakeasy would be like it was just this stage and this fairly small room and then with a balcony above that you would drink and you could watch and and packed at night then the dj came on um and would have been a complete fire hazard had there been a fire because of the way you had to sort of snake your way into the building and i'm not sure any other way to get out than that way um but that that was fun fun nightlife there um but again that's not really my scene <laughs> I was like, I have to ask. I'm sh I'm sure that you know the nightclubs I mean, are popping. It's a twenty city of twenty two million people. You get pretty much everything. I mean, like you could find. I know there were gay clubs, even though that's not really acceptable in China. Um, but I'm there's a whole scene around that too. And um, but not that. I don't know. I've never been. <laughs> What's the uh, racism situation like there? It's different. Like. It's very different than the racism here, um, in my opinion. I mean, like if you're a, like a black person, people are just really interested in you. Um, like I have seen like black people just go get touched by people. Like there's not a lot of boundaries, right? Um, touch their hair, you know, taking pictures of them because I mean, it's just unusual, right? Um, and I know that, and there was some, there's some there was some an incident but that was actually with an expat um I, I, it's hard for me to tell because i don't speak the language really mm -hmm. um i know they have a lot of prejudices i mean i've heard chinese people tell me that people from another province are all liars and i mean they're still chinese <laughs> um so there's a lot of that um uh, but I, I didn't see a lot of overt racism there because you know 99 of people look the same pretty much Chinese. So, I mean, I forgot what the Han Chinese population is there. It's everybody's, you know, the minorities are very minor, minor. So I, I didn't see that very often, but I know it exists. Yeah. I was just curious. Cause you know, some places like they tell you just don't even go if you're black because people treat you badly. 
You know, I've no. heard about Jakarta, for example. Oh, really? Oh, I don't think black people are not going to get it treated badly. They're going to get stared at and they're going to have their picture taken and people are going to be really curious and they may approach them. I mean, even when my kid was, when my young son was little blonde kid, they would, my, my daughter once was going to start charging for pictures with her little brother because everybody, one person would ask and then people would just line up. I mean, not in Beijing. Beijing is a little bit more cosmopolitan than that, but whenever we traveled and we traveled all over China, people were just in, enthralled with little blonde kids. Um, I had a friend who brought, uh, she had a one-year-old and a three-year-old and they were both little. And she said she could barely move in, in Beijing because, and people were taking the baby out of her hands and, and that made her uncomfortable. So it's more that level of curiosity. Um, I wouldn't call it racism because you don't get that deep into it yet. But, um, but yeah, it's, it, but if people are not comfortable with that, I mean, people stared at me too. Staring is, is getting better, but, um, but I don't mind. I stare back because I find them, you know, fascinating. Uh, but I know a lot of people do mind. And if you did, it's not a great, not a great place to go, especially if you're going to villages and places where they don't see foreigners a lot. Beijing's not bad. Shanghai's, Shanghai's got a ton of foreigners, so that's not bad. But if you're, you know, going into the smaller places, the smaller cities, it, it's an issue. I just have two more questions because I don't want to take up too more too much of your time. Okay. But um, what was your favorite place that you or favorite places that you traveled around into China? In China, mm-hmm. that's a hard one. I went. I, I've been to almost all of the provinces. So I think my favorite trip I did with a girlfriend in like 2014, and um, we went to. Guizhou province and we went up into the villages and we we stayed in a minority that I think they were the Miao minority village um, and it's one of these you see where the silver headdresses and the beautiful embroidered dresses um, and they these little villages they're villages of I don't know maybe 500 people tops and very much have suffered from all of their young people going out to the factories, which is this great migration to the factories that happened um, in China starting a couple, a couple decades ago. Um, and these villages are old people and very young people. And they found that one way to make money is to, you know, basically host uh, people from abroad and into their, you know, make, make little make guest villages or guest villas out of their their homes which are all these traditional old homes like you share bathrooms and they're very simple but they're clean and they cook you food and when you get there they do their welcoming ceremony and they're all dressed up in their finery and I mean it's just amazing these things and they and they do shows for you where they sing and it's, it's all kind of scripted but at the same time this is what they really did and it's a small like they'll do it for like 10 of you or something like that um and they're just I don't know. It was it was just kind of a beautiful thing to experience. And we went to a couple of those villages and stayed overnight and they make you food and you know you, you walk around and they'll you know they'll let you take pictures and it's like living it's like a different world. Um and and the kids were great and, and the old people were great and uh, lots of fun lots of fun pictures from that trip. So that was one of my favorites. I think there's been so many there's also some absolutely beautiful scenery. I mean, the mountains and I mean, they've got everything. It's like America. They've got mountains and they've got deserts and they've got oceans and they've got gorgeous, 
pools and oh and they have pandas pandas are awesome i love pandas got a hold i got to hold a panda once that was amazing yeah expensive but amazing um it, I, it's an amazing it's an amazing country there's also out west in gansu province which is near xinjiang they have have this it's called uh mogao grottoes and it's these caves that have been dug out of this i'm going to say sandstone over like a thousand years like there's a thousand years of history that they found in these these caves full of buddhas and and they're painted and there, you can see progression of time through the different caves and there's so much history it's a unesco site it's like one of their top rated sites that was an amazing trip as well um just that that part of the country was was also fantastic there's just, there's it's an amazing place to see is there one like you know if an american wanted or someone from any other country wanted to go to japan or oh my gosh go to china as a tourist mm -hmm. is there like one tour company that you guys heard a lot about or like one way to take a trip to china that was you know something that everybody was recommending to their friends or that you've heard of no really. not not that i'm aware of no um i it's been so long since the tour's been able to go to china <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. A lot of these really cheap trips, I think, are, are kind of flash in the pan things. But I mean, but you want to see the Great Wall, right? Everybody wants to see the Great Wall. You got to see the Forbidden City. I mean, if you, you got to go to Beijing and, you know, the the for the Xi'an and the Terracotta Warriors, that's a pretty amazing thing to see, too. Um, and Shanghai is great. Shanghai is very international. So to me, it, it doesn't feel as Chinese as 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 tourists, so it's I guess good entry level. Mm. <laughs> Chinese gateway, uh, a gateway. Yeah, I mean, it's, you start with Hong Kong, which is very international, and then Shanghai. Um, uh, but it's a, a really cool big city. Lots of lights and uh, laser shows and on the Bund at night, which is fun. Lots of great food. Lots of great food in Shanghai. Uh, there's just the whole country's got a ton to see. But no, I don't know one particular uh, tour company to go with. I was just curious, you know, sometimes you might hear that in certain places. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to circle back to something you said about when you were talking about the moped driver with the rice cooker helmet. <laughs> and I think we always, you know, in, in the West, we hear a lot that China is a collective society. It's a collective culture, not an individual culture like Americans are so individualistic mm -hmm. and they're so collective but it seems like within that I don't know I guess I wonder what you think about that and like it seems like you were saying that there's more of an individual looseness like people don't care in certain ways I don't know if that's yeah. a reflection of the informal economy or if it has to do with like freedom within this collective yeah, I think when you're part of a collective and everybody has to do the same thing, sometimes there's a really intense desire to stand out and be individual, right? You can't necessarily do it in your thinking, but you can do it in other ways. So maybe that's that's part of it. Um, I also I also think that you know they're very they're 
influenced by Japan. They love all things Japanese, sort of, except for they have a horrible history with the Japanese. Um, the Japanese have done some horrible things to the Chinese people, but but they still seem to be pretty excited about Japanese culture. Um, and you know, all that cuteness and all, you know, like the, the cosplay and, and the K-pop and all of that is very, very popular as well. So they're, I think they're kind of riffing off of that sometimes. Um, not maybe the rice cooker helmet. I'm not sure where that came from. Um, I almost bought one of those because I have a, a moped here in America now. Um, but I thought maybe the safety issues, safety of it probably wasn't up to Western standards. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that kawaii culture is like very, the anime influence mm -hmm. and the mangas. I guess yeah. that leads me to one to almost my final question. I lied. I have more than two, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that, you know, going back to these two, these like polarized stereotypes that we have, um, there also seems to be kind of two viewpoints in the States that I hear a lot. One is the future is Asian. China is going to like eventually rule us. They're like so advanced. They're in the future. They have some kind of advantage of being this like top-down system with all this data. And then the other view that I hear is uh, the CCP is like falling apart from the inside because it's so top down and like China's going to collapse because they don't have enough people and people didn't have enough kids. So I wonder if you had any opinions on those two extremely different viewpoints that people seem to hold. Yeah, I think the truth is in the middle. And when people say things like this, I, I try to remind them part of the reason that China is so successful right now is because we have a successful economy and we're buying all their stuff. We are incredibly linked, our two countries. If one goes down, the other one is going to suffer as well. So really, it's not in either's best interest for one to rule over the other. We have got to find a way to live together, you know, it's, we, and be mutually beneficial to each other. And, and, and it shouldn't be that hard, but I know, I know it kind of is. Um, but but yeah, I just don't, it's like the Chinese economy would, you know, doesn't do well when our economy doesn't do well and it all comes back to money. So, you know, we can all just, you know, be friends and make things and buy things from each other and not worry about the rest of it. It's a very simplistic view, I know, but I, I, I sometimes don't like to listen to, to, to either of those doomsayers either way. Yeah. I mean, I we all have, you. both nations have their problem. Absolutely. But, you know, hopefully we can find a way to, to get together. Yeah, it's never that black and white, even though mm -hmm. people want it to be like that. Um, my last question is, what will you miss the most about living in China? Oh, I miss my friends the most. I miss all those people from all the different countries and our fun discussions and going out to at night and listening to silly music and playing mahjong and um, just uh, anytime I wanted to do anything, I just get on WeChat and hey, somebody want to go walk in the park today or you know who wants to take a bike ride or whatever. I had this vast group of fabulous people that would would do things with me and and I don't have that here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so that that is what I miss. It's not uniquely China. It's more about the expat uh situation there um though i know it's not like that in all all places that that people go 
for the expat experience, but it definitely was a tight community in China. Lots of great people. That's amazing that you found that community because I think a lot of people would shy away from going to Beijing. They would be like, oh, too polluted, too foreign, too big of a language barrier. Mm-hmm. But it's obviously a fascinating or, you know, too oppressive, but it's obviously a fascinating place to get a chance to live where most people won't ever get that chance. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate well, and- you sharing like your experience of it. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah. I mean, it's a very rare like chance to have to actually mm-hmm. live there for six years. Six years is a long time. That's like you're past the honeymoon. Right. Yes. But there was a five-year gap in the middle of it. So so maybe that 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 helped it. But yes, definitely felt like I was past the honeymoon, especially there at the end. Yeah. I mean, I could keep asking you so many questions. I'm like, what changed the most in the five years? <laughs> the, the, the thing that changed the most in the five years was the amount of money people had. The more so cars were better, more people had dogs. People kept better care of things like the bathrooms. Um, you, you could definitely tell that in those five years, the economy had improved um, and more was being spent, um, not saved. Uh, it was kind of, that was that and the fact that we went from, this is a small thing. When we were there the first time, everything was cash. Everything we bought was cash. And it was that way for everybody. No credit cards, nothing. When we came back, nobody used cash. So in that period of five years, everybody went straight to their phones to WeChat Pay or Alipay, one of the two, uh, which I found to be much more convenient <laughs> once you got it working. But yeah, that's one of those like leap leapfrog things where they can like skip the middle, mm-hmm. but we're still in the middle here in yeah. America. Yeah. 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 And again, that's partly security. So we kind of want to be in the middle a little bit. It's okay. Love it. All right. Thank you. This has been really fun. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you talking. Maybe we'll talk again in the future sometime. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, folks, that was Melanie Dehoon talking about life in China through American eyes. And I'm Charlotte Dune. Thanks for being here. Uh, You can find more about me at charlottedune.com and charlottedune.substack.com. And check out my books on Amazon. I'm the author of the Psychedelic Love series, Uh, Cactus Friends and Mushroom Honeymoon. And I have a new book that's going to go on pre-sale in July of 2023 called Acid Christmas. So it'll be Christmas in July and then it'll come out uh, before Christmas in 2023. And then I will also be working on a third book in this series. So thank you so much for being here. And please come on over to Charlotte Dunes Lagoon and subscribe so you don't miss any more of these podcast episodes or any of the writing I do. Bye-bye.